This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Joshua Taylor. Hello. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Europe is in the midst of a crushing energy crisis. In many places, monthly heating bills have rapidly risen to be about as much as rent or mortgage payments. And Russia is taking concrete steps to make the crisis even worse. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Russia has fired their energy weapon once again. Uh, Yesterday, they cut off gas to France's France's largest gas buyer. Uh, They've shut down the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, so this crucial pipeline for Germany getting their gas from Russia. They were operating at 20% uh, capacity. Now they're down to zero. And uh, it's interesting timing. It's very transparent timing. Right before they did this, uh, there was some news coming out of Europe and Germany showing uh, how much these countries had managed to fill up their storage capacity for the winter. And they'd done much better than people were expecting. They had more saved up for the winter than people thought. And so immediately, Russia introduces these cuts. And none of them are marketed as anything political. It's like, oh, we've got to shut down Nord Stream Pipeline for routine maintenance and things like that. Uh, but the timing of it, it's, it's very obvious that it is political. And so they're using their energy weapon. They're also preparing their energy weapon. They're wanting to make sure they, they can put maximum pressure on Europe over the winter. And that Europe cannot kind of have enter the winter. They want to make sure that Europe doesn't enter the winter with kind of bumper reserves of energy, uh, but instead enters the winter with some stress. And then they can pile up that stress as they go. There are a lot of pressures on European energy right now. And Russia couldn't be doing this at a more politically and economically a vulnerable time for Europe. What we're seeing in energy prices in Europe is just absolutely unprecedented. There are people that are truly suffering because uh, of this. And for Russia to take this opportunity, uh, it's it's quite extraordinary that they're willing to do this at this time. Uh, maybe just talk about their motives in what they're trying to do to Europe at this at this point. Yeah, I think they're playing with fire in a lot of ways. I mean, you can talk. We can talk about their motives, uh, and then we can also talk about perhaps their unintended consequences, some of the things that this might do, uh, maybe even going even further than than Russia wants. I think a big part of this might be to try and force a complete and public break between Europe and the United States, that a lot of European powers are at least on paper, allied with America. And we have talked about the way that Germany has been kind of siding with Russia behind the scenes. The big push here is there's there's more and more voices within Germany saying that we need to forget these sanctions. Not only do we need to drop sanctions on Russia, we need to open up Nord Stream 2 now. 
because remember Nord Stream 2 was built mm -hmm. but Germany just refused the piece of paper to to get it going so there have been there were a lot of headlines I think even the Economist just this week had a, or maybe it was two weeks ago they had an article about how these sanctions are not really hurting Russia and a big part of that is because of Germany's effort in in getting around them uh, and in making sure that they don't hurt Russia but by pushing European countries now Maybe they could get the entire country, the, the entire continent to publicly break with America and to completely end all of their sanctions on Russia, uh, just to give up, to certify Nord Stream 2 and to, for kind of Europe to say, OK, this is no longer NATO versus Russia. This is just America versus Russia. Well, it is interesting that uh, you would have voices within Europe that would say the, the solution to this problem is that we need to draw closer to Russia. We've talked about just how fraught the relationship is, particularly between Germany and Russia historically, and how this might even factor into uh, events in the future. Uh, it, it just strikes me that if you had an American leader who was interested in providing an alternative uh, to to Europe and saying, well, we'll we'll step in where Russia is is pulling back, there would be a real opportunity there. We don't have that. Uh, but how, how do you see this, uh, this playing out? Yeah, well, that's what Donald Trump was doing. He was saying, you know, we'll, we, we're fracking, we've got lots of gas, we've got more gas than we can use. Yeah. We'll, uh, liquefy it and send it to you. And that, uh, that's kind of gone now. But I think the potential political consequences of this kind of economic unrest are huge. You talked about just the pressure that Europeans are under and, it's only just getting started. Already people are kind of just individuals struggling with their energy bills. Mm -hmm. A lot of individuals have been sheltered from that. Uh, they tend to get, uh, you know, the governments will do quite a lot to try and make sure that people's energy bills don't, don't go up too much. Now, there are still, still struggling, but you're seeing a lot more struggling on the business level. Governments aren't as interested in insulating businesses, so you're getting, uh, you're getting a lot of businesses going under now because mm -hmm. they can't afford their energy bills. And then what you're also having is this potential to cause governments to go under. Euro Intelligence this, just this week had an article talking about Italy, how the Italian government is spending, well, as they put it, they're spent like there's no tomorrow because they, it, they've, been prop, they've been subsidizing fuel. They've been making sure that people, the, the, the individual Italians aren't the ones paying the bill for this. But they're already heavily indebted, and their debt has gone up from 135% of their economy to 150%. We used to think that 90% was the point where you were in danger of going bust. Mm. Uh, Italy has blown well past that, and they've done that with the help of windfall taxes and Mario Draghi finding money down the back of the sofa, that kind of thing. That's all gone. And so their debt could increase even faster. So this, this could become countries going bust. And then the knock-on effects of high gas prices just keep going on and on and on. Uh, fertilizer. You've had the world's largest fertilizer uh, company, Yara, in Norway, announced that they're shutting down 50% of the production of a key type of fertilizer. Uh, Britain's biggest fertilizer plant has shut down. Two of Poland's biggest, largest fertilizer plants have shut down because natural gas is a key part of it. They can't afford to keep running. Well, what does that do to your farming industry, to your agricultural industry? Then CO2 is manufactured while they make fertilizer. It's made as a byproduct. 
And then they use that in beer. Breweries all across Europe are shutting down. You know, Carlsberg is shut down in Poland because they no longer have the CO2 to manufacture their beer. So when you get your rapidly increasing energy prices this winter, you're not even going to be able to afford to drown your sorrows. <laughs> uh, and I use that joke twice because I put that on the Trumpet Daily as well. But uh, it probably wasn't a good enough joke to warrant using twice. Uh, <laughs> But you've got all of these uh, knock-on effects that just go beyond what you'd think about. It's also then soft drinks like sodas and Coca-Cola. That uses CO2 as well that's manufactured in this kind of process. Uh, then you've got Germany's manufacturing industry. So the potential economic implications of this are huge. And you know, I was talking about this a bit on the Trumpet Daily Radio show yesterday. You look at some of the things that brought people like Mussolini to power and, and mm -hmm. some of the extreme governments in the 1920s, Mussolini very early 20s, 1930, it was things like out of control inflation. And it was, it was economic shortages, this perception of mismanagement by politicians. That's what we're seeing now. And uh, so you could very easily see what Vladimir Putin is doing here, leading to massive economic consequences. And Mr. Armstrong warned about this. He talked about how a banking crisis in Europe, he wrote, it could suddenly result in triggering, sorry, a banking crisis in America could suddenly result in triggering European nations to unite as a new world power, larger than either the Soviet Union or the US. He also talked about the role that Russia would play and fear of Russia would play in prompting Europe to unite. You kind of see these two things coming together right now, fear of Russia and then this potential massive economic crisis, causing all kinds of political change across Europe, bringing into power a whole different type uh, of leader uh, and uh, you know, massive political changes due to this economic crisis. Vladimir Putin doesn't really understand the uh, the forces that he could very well unleash and quite rapidly within Europe. But you look at some of those historical parallels that that you were alluding to and uh, put it together with biblical prophecy about what we can expect from Europe in the time ahead. This is going to completely reshape the world history. It is. I, Mr. Flurry had an article in the 2015 May-June uh, Trumpet print edition. It's called A Bold Warning, America's Economic Collapse. But he talked about just the effect that uh, economic collapse can have on Europe, which is exactly what we're talking about here and how it could change the world. But the front cover for that Trumpet issue was uh, a picture of Vladimir Putin, a picture of the Ayatollah in Iran, a picture of Xi Jinping, and then a European flag with a question mark on it. Mm -hmm. you know, Europe's going to get their strong leader. This strong leader is absolutely key to Bible prophecy. He is going to, to change the world in many respects, or God will allow him to. And that's what this could tie into. This could usher in this kind of a rise in a strong leader. You, 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 we might see, the, see a major step in that in Italy's elections later this month. We're seeing... Uh, Germany's leader getting booed and Germany looking for a new leader uh, now increasingly more than they have for the last year or so. Uh, and so, yes, in, in bringing a strong leader to Europe, you have a continent with a huge potential power that's not really using it right now because of weak leadership uh, that can be radically transformed and that will change the world. We will link to that article, a bold warning. America's economic collapse in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. The threat posed by Iran's nuclear program continues to grow. This week, the terrorist sponsoring nation pushed ahead with plans to ramp up advanced uranium enrichment. To learn about this, we'll turn to Joshua Taylor. 
Yeah. So this week, Iran started up two out of three newly installed banks of their advanced IR6 centrifuges. So what these centrifuges do is they take and cascade uranium hexafluoride gas, the raw material to make nuclear nuclear weapons grade material. It takes that material and purifies it by cascading it down the bank of of, uh, centrifuges. So as the, the process goes and the more centrifuges you have, the quicker you can purify that raw material and the quicker you can get up uh, and running nuclear material. So these banks of uh, centrifuges are their most advanced centrifuges. Uh, They're capable of enriching uranium up to 60% or even higher. Uh, These are the ones that when they go to go to make a nuclear weapons grade uranium, so that's about 90%, it'll be with these uh, reactors specifically. And these reactors, they've installed them in an underground facility uh, that's been hardened to prevent it from being attacked or uh, bombed by Israel or the United States. And Iran is currently using these centrifuges to uh, enrich 5% or up to 5% purity. But that's just, that's the most time consuming step to do this kind of enrichment. That's the scary part is that Iran is really pushing forward now with, uh, with its uh, uranium enrichment, just full tilt. Uh, and you can just see that it doesn't care about the deal that is that it has uh, on the line. Right. Yeah, that's uh, interesting to see what is happening here in light of the fact that negotiations continue. Uh, tell us what the state of those negotiations are right now. So actually, just this morning, Iran finally sent its reply to the West's, quote, final offer uh, that was given last week. And as you would expect from Iran at this point, it's just waffling about it sent the U.S. a constructive response, quote unquote, uh, but the, Uni- the United States definitely did not agree with that assessment. A uh, senior Biden administration official said, "We are studying Iran's response, but the bottom line is that we are not at all. So this is not at all encouraging. Based on their answer, we appear to be moving backward." And again, this is almost expected at this point. These talks have been going on for 17 months now. It's been a marathon. And it's it's really it's one of those things where you keep it's almost a, the anticipation just kind of kills you because we this is a terrible deal. You don't really want to see it signed. But at the same time, nothing ever happens. So it's just kind of frustrating on all sides to see this. Well, it does seem pretty clear that uh, Iran has been uh, doing everything that it can to buy as much time as possible so that it can continue these uh, these activities. Absolutely. And that's what this news story with these newly installed uh, centrifuges really show that Iran does not fear the U.S. It does not fear the West in general. It doesn't think that the U.S. or the West will ever retaliate. And because of that, they're just going to keep on delaying and delaying as long as they possibly can or until they either get a bomb like straight out or until they have so much nuclear material, it just doesn't even matter anymore. The the state that is of most immediate and most immediate danger uh, with Iran's nuclear program, and they've been very strong that they are not going to allow this to, to happen, is Israel. What's happening in Israel as this is uh, proceeding? So uh, on August 20, uh, 29th, Yir Lapid, uh, the, pr- the current prime minister of Israel, met with uh, his predecessor, Benjamin Netanyahu, hmm. and gave a security briefing to him just to kind of show him what this the details of this emerging deal is and talk about how Israel is approaching it. It's kind of a, a tradition in in Israel to do this. It's a kind of a, a courtesy to do this with the opposition leader. And 
Yeah, Netanyahu was not impressed. After the meeting, he said that he was more worried after the meeting than before, and that he accused, this was to the media, he said directly he was accusing the government of falling asleep on the job. And uh, as you can imagine, Yir Lapid's uh, party wasn't too pleased with this response, and they accused Netanyahu of doing tremendous damage while he was in office, and that he was just sabotaging the security interests of Israel right now. But that's not at all what Netanyahu is doing. You think back to when the original JCPOA, the original nuclear deal was done, Netanyahu really pushed uh, to not to, to, to nix this deal, to prevent it from happening, because he knew the damage that would be doing. And he wants Yir Lapid and the government of Israel to be more forceful with the American public and Congress, because just like with Obama, he knows that Joe Biden's going to go for this deal at any cost. Well, we uh, have written a lot about the dangers of a uh, an Iranian nuclear power. Uh, we have our booklet, The King of the South, by our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, that explains the prophetic context. You can read in Daniel 11 and verse 40 just how pushy the Iranian foreign policy gets and the consequences that that will have uh, in end-time events. Uh, we thank you very much for that. Mr. Taylor, evidence keeps piling up about the severity and the scale of atrocities China is wreaking on the population of its Xinjiang province. This week, the United Nations issued a report on activity there. To hear about what they said, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, the United Nations has finally released its long-awaited report on Wednesday about China's treatment of the Uyghur minority there in the Xinjiang region of the country. This report is 45 pages long, and it was released just in the last few minutes of the tenure of the outgoing UN human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet. Uh, China had actually warned her really adamantly over the last few months not to release the report. And for most of the summer, there were questions about whether or not she and the UN would cave into that pressure. But the report was finally published, and it's quite a scathing document. It uh, methodically goes through these allegations that have been levied against the Chinese Communist Party for its uh, treatment of Uyghurs, and it describes what it calls patterns of torture including beatings with electric batons and rods. It talks about forced medication, constant hunger that the detainees are subjected to, rape, as well as other kinds of uh, sexual violence. And critically, this report says those allegations are credible. It's built on the testimony of 26 people who had personal firsthand knowledge of the inner workings of these camps. They were either detainees in the facilities, that was the case with most of them, or a few actually worked in the facilities. But uh, in either case, their accounts are just chilling. One woman detailed a drug that she and other detainees had to take every day. This was believed to be something that sterilized the women so they wouldn't be able to have any more children. And one quote from her report says, we received one tablet a day. It looked like aspirin. We were lined up and someone with gloves systematically checked our mouths to make sure we swallowed it. Um, so, you know, that's just one account of several about forced medications that detainees had to take. Others spoke of various forms of sexual violence, including rape and instances of sexual humiliation. So these are uh, just profoundly disturbing testimonials. And the publication of this report is a big development in this twisted saga that we've been watching for 
about five years now, because human rights groups have warned for much of that time that, you know, all these horrendous abuses have been taking place. But now we have something beyond just allegations. This is an official verdict from the UN, and its overall conclusion is that serious human rights violations have been committed, and there is, quote, credible evidence of torture possibly amounting to crimes against humanity. Well, you have to give the UN credit for resisting that uh, Chinese uh, pressure to keep all of this information uh, under under wraps, but uh, there's just been a lot of information about what china is up to over there uh and you wonder with all of the information that is out there we really do it becomes just increasingly appalling just how uh nations seem to be unwilling to actually hold china to account yeah that's true and and even with this report you know, it, it sounds like it could be kind of a game changer. Amnesty International actually said the publication of this will be a game changer. Human rights groups are saying that this should be a big turning point in the way the world handles these these accusations and in the way the world deals with uh, with China. But the truth is, this report was delayed for a very long time due to Chinese pressure. And even though it is damning, it has been softened a great deal. You know, the actual facts show that China is not just committing crimes against humanity. It is engaged in genocide, according to the technical definitions. That's a much heavier label than this UN report used. And that label is warranted. But the, you know, the UN softened the report because it didn't want to upset the Chinese too much. And I think that shows us that we really shouldn't expect much to come of this. China is one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. That means they have a vast amount of influence over the whole organization, including veto power over any, you know, decision that they don't like. And of course, China could also ask Russia, which also has veto power to join them so that it doesn't look too one-sided in anything that it might veto. But even without Russia, a Chinese veto would keep much from coming of this. And, and that really exposes the fundamental problem with the United Nations. Like you said, they should be commended for releasing this report. A lot of people are calling that in and of itself a minor miracle, just that it came out. But you've got these opportunist and ruthless powers on the Security Council of the UN. And that means that very little real progress ever really results from it. We have followed this story quite closely over the years that this has been unfolding. And maybe you can uh, catch our listeners up to speed on why we view this as significant from a prophetic standpoint. Sure, yes. I think uh, one of the most powerful Trumpet articles that uh, really puts it in the prophetic context is one that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in our February 2020 issue. It's called The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. And that article is built around a prophecy in the Bible that says an era called the Times of the Gentiles will begin shortly before the end of this present era. And he talks about how America and British leadership for decades was overall a positive force for the world. It brought a lot of stability and opportunity to billions of people. Those countries had biblically influenced beliefs in the God-given rights of individuals and the rule of law. So they did bring a lot of stability to many nations around the world. But Mr. Fleury's article shows that that era is now coming to an end and the times of the Gentiles is beginning. And in this new era, we can 
expect ruthless governments like the one that we see in China to grow more and more powerful. Mr. Fleury actually specifically mentions Xinjiang, China in that article. And he says that all those atrocities happening there right now are just a preview of how dark the times of the Gentiles will be. So the kind of barbarity that we see in this remote little section of, of China will soon be happening around the world. So I think that's a, a very important article to understand the biblical context of it, the climax of man's rule over man. All right, we'll link to that in the show notes for the program today. Thank you, Mr. Jacques. Drought is parching the Western United States on a staggering scale, and the effects are going to keep getting worse for Americans. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the Western United States is experiencing its most severe drought in well over a millennium, and millions of Americans are about to feel the devastating uh, facts. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but the Colorado River that starts in Colorado and then flows down to, um, to the ocean, it's one of the 10 biggest rivers in the United States, and there's actually 40 million people that rely on it for water. That's about 12%. 12% of America's total population rely on that river for water uh, and electricity, many of them as well. And that river is going dry. The The federal government's getting quite concerned about it. The Bureau of Land Reclamation uh, has asked seven states to reduce their water consumption by 40%, so almost half. And the reason they're asking that, they said, if you don't reduce your water consumption by about 40%, they said the river is going to get so dry that uh, both Lake Powell and Lake Mead are going to go dry. And those lakes are really vital because uh, that's where you have the Glen Canyon Dam and the Hoover Dam. And those two dams generate electricity for 4 million people. Uh, I think already the Hoover Dam, that lake, uh, Lake Mead, is down uh, below... 25% of its overall capacity. And uh, it doesn't have to go completely dry for the dam to stop working. It just has to get a little bit lower than it is right now. And so the Bureau of Land Reclamation is saying, hey, if you don't cut your water 40%, uh, these, uh, these dams are going to stop working and you're going to have like 4 million people without electricity. Uh, and they, they gave the states a deadline to come up with a plan to cut their water, and they've blown past that deadline. They have not reduced the water yet, and uh, they may yet, but even if they refuse, uh, no, but even if they, if they refuse, those, da those dams are going to go dry, and you're going to lose electricity. But even if they comply, um, the Colorado River, it also irrigates about 15% of America's cropland. Actually, that's, that's why they want them to cut the water is that currently about 80% of the water from the river is used for crop irrigation. Wow. Uh, that, um, that region there throughout Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, uh, it's like a heartland for cattle ranching and a lot of our winter vegetables. I actually think a shocking amount of our winter vegetables that grow in winter, like something like 80% of our winter vegetables come in that area. And so you, uh, you cut that water level down and now all of a sudden, uh, you can't raise your cattle. You can't grow your winter vegetables. Mm -hmm. The, the cost of both beef and, uh, and vegetables is going to skyrocket as you lose your water for irrigation. So there's really no easy choices right now. Like right now it's basically risk 4 million people losing their electricity or, risk 15% of America's agricultural land going dry, uh, there probably will be enough water left in the river, no matter what, for like people to drink. Uh, but 
you're looking at like, well, we can't, we can't generate electricity and irrigate this cropland both. Uh-huh. So the the Bureau of Land Reclamation they're saying is like well it's like we we just need to like tighten our belts and do whatever we can to get through to the end of this year in in, in hopes that will rain next year but the but the weather forecasters are <laughs> are predicting that this drought may well last till 2030 like another decade and so which means if it, if it goes that long you might in a couple of years from now have a case to where it's not choosing between electricity and irrigation in the fact that you can't do either it's um yeah it's a pretty some pretty shocking statistics that region of the the west uh there's several species of trees out there that grow to be very old like bristlecone pine stuff like that that they routinely get well above three thousand years uh so you're they um the scientists have actually been able to go through and like look at the tree rings and use like tree ring width as a proxy for rain and uh as close as they can figure that 22 year span between 2000 and right now uh, has actually been the driest and that the, the tree rings are the thinnest uh, any point in southwestern history that they can see since like the year 800. So I, I said at the beginning, it's the worst drought in over a millennium. It's like actually might be the worst drought in well over a millennium, like 1,200 years uh, that it's been this dry there. Because, I mean, you, it's the Western United States. You commonly hear uh, uh, about bat, lack of rain. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dry region. But it's like I said, it's been, it's been a long time. Uh, it's been a long time since, since this dry, like well before any Europeans were here to observe it being this dry. Um, like I said, and probably going back all the way. <laughs> all the way to the first millennium uh, after Christ. Quite, quite stunning. And uh, the, this is exactly the, the type of thing that um, gets uh, so many commentators and politicians uh, talking about climate change and the need to uh, move to electric vehicles and the, saying that this is crunch time. This is exactly the kinds of effects that we can expect more and more of if we don't make these transitions. We have a booklet, Why Natural Disasters, that explains the real cause for these uh, these kinds of problems that are plaguing more and more Americans and people in many other nations as well, uh, according to what the Bible says. We'd really encourage you to take a look at that booklet. We also have an article by Andrew Miller, The Western U.S. is Running Out of Water, on this subject in particular. We'll link to both of those resources in the show notes for the program. Thank you, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, a report on the deaths in Mariupol in the early days of Russia's war in Ukraine being much higher than initially reported. The death of former Russian Premier Mikhail Gorbachev, a stunning revelation from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, and some exciting archaeological news from Jerusalem. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We spoke in the first half of the atrocities China is wreaking in Xinjiang. Another tragedy continues to unfold at the hand of China's ally Russia in Ukraine. A report this week shows the bloodshed in the first phase of that war, particularly in Mariupol, 
was far worse than previously realized. For this story, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, several months after Russian soldiers massacred the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, some big picture data is finally coming to light that exposes the real scale of Russia's destruction in that once thriving city. And this data is very disturbing. The main part of it comes from a report by Ilichovsky Morg in Mariupol. And they say that they've documented 87,000 dead people, dead as a result of Russia's assault, siege, and ghettoization of the city. And then there are another 26,000 bodies that they've not yet been able to identify. So 87,000 identified, 26,000 unidentified. That brings the death count to 113,000. That's a figure many times higher than previous estimates about how many were killed here um, have, have said it was. But Mariupol did have close to half a million people before the war started. It was a bustling port city, one of Ukraine's wealthiest and most modern. Uh, but the Russian invaders unleashed all kinds of firepower on it. It was assaulted like no other Ukrainian city has been. Um, more than 95% of its buildings were destroyed. We already knew that. And now this new report says 25% of its people were also destroyed. So this is the starkest evidence yet of Russia's willingness to commit war crimes and atrocities in the course of this war that it says is supposed to save Ukrainians from themselves. One uh, survivor from the city says a certain day came back in March when it became clear that civilians were not just kind of getting caught in the crossfire accidentally, but they were being intentionally targeted. And this survivor said, we realized the Russians had come to kill us. They didn't come to fight with Ukrainian soldiers. They just wanted to kill us. So we've heard, you know, a lot of testimony along these lines over the last few months. And now this big picture data is finally coming to light that confirms that this was just a horrendous and a large-scale massacre that the Russians carried out. You know, we we spoke in the first half about how uh, how tolerant in some ways the world has uh, been of China and what it's been doing in, in Xinjiang. Uh, this is also quite extraordinary how much, uh, how, how little is being done in light of just how egregious these Russian atrocities in uh, Ukraine have been. Uh, it, it really is important that we recognize the scale of what is happening here. That's right. Yeah. And it would, you know, it would be great to see a little more help given to Ukraine. You know, of course, we wouldn't expect uh, direct U.S. involvement just because of the implications of two nuclear powers fighting against each other. But I think that if uh, if reports like this can convince the U.S. and other nations to give more training and more weaponry to the Ukrainians, then that's a, it's a very positive development of, of this being published. But uh, yeah, this mass slaughter of Ukrainian civilians, it's, it is just evil beyond words. And of course, it's disturbing and deeply unsettling to talk about it and to think about it. But the Bible actually tells us that we should not turn away from these kinds of acts. That's in Isaiah 33, 18, where it says, our hearts must meditate terror. And this is something that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Daryl Flurry spoke about a few years back. He said, we can't just shut it out of our minds and go watch television or read a book or go see some sporting event or whatever. God says, I want you to think about it, and I want you to understand it, and I want you to proclaim it to this world. 
end quote. So, you know, as much as uh, most of us would probably prefer to escape into a good book or watch a football game or whatever it may be, as much as we would prefer not to give much thought to this war and to the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian civilians that have been slaughtered, as as disgusting as it all is to con- to consider all of that, we need to meditate on it. We need to contemplate the evil and the suffering. And uh, we do have an article called Why You Need to See the Horror in Ukraine that explains that command in Isaiah and uh, Mr. Fleury's comments on it. And it really gives some some valuable perspective into this barbaric Russian war. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, That article, Why You Need to See the Horror in Ukraine, we'll link to that in the show notes. And we appreciate you bringing that to us, Jeremiah. We have often drawn attention to the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, saying that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Well, this week, the man who is arguably perhaps more responsible for that event than any other died. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, a man who is uh, arguably one of the world's most influential leaders of the uh, 20th century, though perhaps not in the way that he would have liked to have been, died this week on uh, August 30th, on Tuesday. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the USSR and uh, a man who played a key role in the Iron of the USSR. There have been a host of articles this week talking about that, the pivotal role played in world events and debating his legacy. But what none of these articles have picked up on is he is a man who played a key role in end-time Bible prophecy as well, that his life enabled some critical Bible prophecies to be fulfilled and ones that we've spent a long time talking about. Herbert W. Armstrong spent decades forecasting that a lot of that a whole block of countries would break away from behind the Iron Curtain. It's a, a forecast that you know he he made this. This is this is from 1955. Uh, he said some of the Balkan nations are going to tear away from beyond the line, Iron Curtain. Russia has already lost all appearances tighter as Yugoslavia. Russia probably will lose still more of her Eastern European satellites. Then uh, the next year. It's that we've shown years in advance what would happen to Russia's ill-fated empire in Eastern Europe. Uh, 1957, Mr. Armstrong wrote, when the right psychological moment arrives, a number of these Eastern European nations will break away from Moscow. So consistently, even while the Soviet Union was strong, I mean, you look at what was happening in 1955, 1956, you've got... uh, the Soviet Union being incredibly strong, you're getting Soviet Union shocking the world with the atomic bomb uh, and, and this kind of thing. And he's saying, no, there's a whole bunch of nations in Eastern Europe that are going to break away. And this is what happened under Mikhail Gorbachev. This seemingly improbable Bible prophecy was fulfilled uh, on his watch and uh, because of some of his actions. What informed those forecasts from Herbert Armstrong? So he based this off, uh, largely off Daniel chapter two, that talks about, it gives us gives us a sweeping overview of so many world events, and then also gives us so many specifics. So Daniel chapter two was a, a vision given to Daniel that showed which empires would rule the world uh, you know, f- from here on out, for or which Gentile empires would dominate the world. And the final part of this image is divided into parts. 
And the final part describes the Roman Empire and talks about the which it's divided into two legs, showing that the Roman Empire would have a presence in the east and in the west. It gets down to the end of this image draws attention to the fact that it has 10 toes, uh, that it would be made up of 10 different nations. Other scriptures confirm you have this empire rate made of 10 different nations. You get to Revelation chapter 17, uses different symbolisms, but it describes 10 kings sharing their power. But Daniel 2 shows us you have five of these coming from one leg, five from the other, five from the east, five from the west. And so because of this, Mr. Armstrong knew you're going to have to have a strong eastern component within this coming European empire. It's not just going to be a Western-led empire. The European Union, or what became the European Union, started in the West. Mr. Armstrong knew because of these Bible prophecies that some of the Eastern nations would have to break away from the Iron Curtain to join it. We have seen that already. That's a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, and now we have so many more specifics that God revealed through Mr. Armstrong that we're just watching right now be fulfilled. Trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic wrote about this in his Trumpet Brief yesterday. The title of that is an obituary for Mikhail Gorbachev. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. In a recent interview, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg made a bombshell admission regarding the extent of FBI meddling in the 2020 election. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, it seems like for the past year, and especially for the past month, just scandal after scandal after scandal involving the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation has been uncovered. And uh, it almost makes you wonder, it's like, well, how, how, how many more scandals are there, are there left to investigate? Uh, but last Friday, they found out that there's a, another big one that the FBI was intrinsically involved in the theft of the 2020 presidential election. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, gave an interview last week with the uh, the podcaster Joe Rogan, and uh, Joe Rogan did a, a very good job at just making him comfortable to uh, kick back and uh, express himself and uh, talk frankly. And he actually admitted last Friday that the FBI had instructed him to censor Russian information. Here's the uh, the quote from what Zuckerberg told Rogan. He said, basically, the background here is the FBI basically came to us, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, just so you know, you should be on high alert. We thought there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about some kind of dump that's similar to that, so just be vigilant. So, so the FBI is telling them, it's like, hey, there's going to be a dump of Russian information. Make sure you're censoring it from your platform, uh, which is a pretty, <laughs> a pretty big story in itself, just that the federal government is telling a private company what and why it cannot print. Uh, and then Rogan um, followed up pretty quick. He's like, well, did they tell you to specifically censor the Hunter Biden laptop story? Because that was a dump that the media declared Russian information shortly after that conversation. And Zuckerberg kind of unconvincingly said, he's like, well, he's like, I don't necessarily remember the details as if they told me to censor that specifically, but they were telling me to censor that type of thing. And um, you'll, um, you'll remember from back then, it was just about a month before the, uh, the 2020 election, the, uh, the New York Post broke a story about this laptop being recovered from Hunter Biden. He left it in a, 
repair shop in Delaware, and it had all sorts of details about his involvement with drugs and his involvement with prostitutes and his corrupt business deals with oligarchs in Russia and in Ukraine and in Kazakhstan and in China and other places. And uh, the uh, as soon as the New York Post broke that story, Twitter censored, uh, froze the New York Post's account, and Facebook changed its algorithms to suppress the story. And pretty much all the mainstream media outlets um, across the board condemned it as Russian disinformation. It took about a year before the New York Times finally came out and said, it's like, all right, well, it looks like it's not Russian disinformation. It actually is Hunter Biden's laptop. And now most of the media, mainstream media organizations have had to fess up that that did belong to him. But the uh, but the FBI knew it all along. They're the ones, the FBI is the ones that recovered the laptop from the repairman in Delaware. So they actually had the laptop. They could examine it. They could see what it was before the media could see what it was. And yet they still told um, Facebook to start censoring Russian disinformation, well knowing that this dump... <laughs> He said this. They told him. I said a dump's coming, and it's like, well, what, what? What was the dump? And the dump shortly after that was the laptop story. So that's clearly, that's very clearly what they were talking about, which is huge news because they've done um, done polling before where I think we we've cited one poll before where like six in ten, um, Biden voters, like people who voted for Joe Biden, right, said that they may not have done so if they would have known about all this Hunter Biden stuff before the election. And then another poll shows that like eight in 10 Americans, not just Biden, Americans think that like Joe Biden probably wouldn't be the president if it, if they'd have known about this story. Like if that would have, if before the election you said, Hey, this isn't Russian disinformation, basically Hunter Biden's guilty of absolutely everything. The steel dossier accused Donald Trump of being guilty of. Right. Um, uh, you just start looking at the poll numbers and you're, you're, you're looking about like 7 million people who may not have voted for Joe Biden. Now, like uh, Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules documentary say, claims that up to 5 million votes were rigged. Yeah. But it's like even this with the rigging, talking about rigging, even with yeah. the rigging, Trump would have Trump would have still probably beat the rig. Yeah. And won the election if the FBI would have let this information come out when the New York Post was trying to get it out. Right. This is uh, this is why Donald Trump uh, wrote on a, a Truth Social post, uh, basically, like this information shows that that it was absolutely a uh, a fraudulent election. We need to either uh, declare who the winner is, or at the very least, uh, nullify those results and and hold a new election immediately. Right, because you're looking at. I mean. He has he has a point there in that and it's there's really no constitutionally charted path to overturn a certified electoral college vote. But when you get a revelation like this, it's like a new election or, or at least a new electoral college vote. Do the January 6th, uh, do the January 6th thing over again uh, could be quite warranted because, I mean, this is a huge expose of the deep state. I mean, we'll we'll put in the show notes as we, we normally put in the show notes these days uh our editor-in-chief's new book, uh, America Under Attack, that talks a lot about the deep state because uh, here he is that this was this was happening in October 2020. So this was these were things the FBI what the FBI was doing when Donald Trump was still the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so it, it's not necessarily like Barack Obama or Joe Biden's FBI trying to keep a Republican from office. This is actually like a, a, a federal intelligence agency under a Republican president who's still loyal to the opposition party and doing everything they can to make sure that the the current president didn't get a second term by uh by one uh instigating this crossfire hurricane investigation that like falsely accused trump of colluding with russian oligarchs when there was no evidence and two uh making sure that facebook and twitter and all the big tech organizations are following the fbi's lead and making sure that all the Russian oligarchs that we actually have bank accounts that Hunter Biden actually did do business with, uh, no one finds out about that until the New York Times decides to publish an article 18 months after mm -hmm. the fact, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, it's amazing to, to see all of this information coming out and... Uh, and we talk a lot about just how we're living in the age of exposure, that God is making sure that all of this information really is out in the public eye. And what's remarkable is is uh, how many people have no interest in it whatsoever. I think there are, it just shows the divide between those who are interested in truth and those who are interested in uh, their own narrative is growing wider and wider. We have an article up on the website by Stephen Flurry, How the FBI Rigged the 2020 Election. Uh, you can check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. One final story, a very exciting story. The parent organization of the Trumpet has been sponsoring archaeological activities in Jerusalem this past summer. The first news of what our crew there uncovered is coming out. To learn about this, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. So uh, with the Trumpet.com, we have the Trumpet magazine with our sister organization, the Armstrong Institute for Biblical Archaeology. We have a new magazine called Let the Stone Speak. And in that newest edition of that magazine, we have an awesome article about these uh, new rare coins that were found with this newest dig during the summer. Now, these coins are what there's 24 of them, which is a huge find. That's that's unprecedented in terms of like how many that were found in this one area. These are what's called year four revolt coins. So basically these coins were minted during the great revolt in Jerusalem. Uh, that's back right before the 70, 80 destruction of Jerusalem by the hands of the Romans. So these coins were minted in defiance of the Roman authorities. And they, especially that year right before Jerusalem was destroyed, those coins up until recently have been very rare and hard to find. Uh, but this is actually the second of such a great find. Uh, one previous one was back in 2018 when uh, Dr. Alot Mazar, um, again, uh, with the support of uh, the Armstrong Institute and the Trumpets Parent Organization, found an, a very similar hoard of year four coins. And that dig was, as I said, was conducted in partnership with uh, the Armstrong Institute. Um, and a really interesting thing, uh, interesting fact about these newest coins is that on the coins, they don't have a minting authority. So they don't have an authority saying like these coins are, are minted under the authority of what so-and-so. But scholars believe that these coins were minted by actually by the temple officials uh, because the symbols associated with the temple, uh, with the Jerusalem temple are on those coins. And the fact is that uh, during that time, the temple was the main treasury for silver, which these uh, coins are minted on. And then another cool detail about these, this, these coins 
is that there's an inscription on them reading for the redemption of Zion. Uh, scholars believe that shows that at this point, you know, right before they're about to be destroyed, there was a pretty significant mood shift within the rebels where they were just kind of resigning themselves to the inevitable that was coming up. Yeah. Um, Gerald Fleury has talked quite a bit about the uh, significance of these finds that draw attention to this very tense period in Jerusalem's history just before uh, they were ravaged and ransacked, uh, just a terrible holocaust that happened in 70 AD. And you get the, the sense of the terror of the people who were stashing these coins and trying to uh, prepare themselves, brace themselves for the uh, the horror that was coming and how this this really does this history uh coming to life through these archaeological finds points to uh some end time prophecy that that this same kind of event is going to repeat itself um we have quite a bit of information about that getting that let the stone speak magazine uh would be a great start and we will link to uh, an article that mr flurry has written about that earlier trove of uh coins that were found it's exciting to see this taking place, especially on this weekend. The Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology has quite a, a milestone event happening this weekend. Absolutely. Uh, this upcoming week on September 4th, the Institute is actually going to be being able to open its doors officially to the public. We have got a building now in Jerusalem. It's in a really nice district. It's not very far, actually, from the prime minister's house, and it's in that same district, that same area. And on Sunday, we're going to be having, or they're going to be having a special event uh, for that grand opening that will also feature the trumpet editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, giving a keynote address at that time. Now, if we have any listeners or any, uh, any of our listeners ever visit Jerusalem, the doors to the Institute are always open during their normal business hours. And the Institute will offer private tours of ancient Jerusalem and will, have, uh, will host future archaeological exhibits as well. So if you're ever in the area, please check that out. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of William Morris. The true secret of happiness lies in taking a genuine interest in all the details of daily life. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.